Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. This episode marks a year since we launched the Safety and Health Podcast, so I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who has been on this journey with us so far. If you're new to the podcast, please be sure to check out the back catalogue, either on your podcast platform of choice or on the SHP hub page. This episode is another collaboration with our friends at IFSEC and FireX. In a moment, I'm going to be joined again by IFSEC Global Editor James Moore, and we're going to look back on a recent FireX webinar, which looked at the legislative and systematic changes required in fire safety and the wider building sector to ensure buildings are made safer for occupants. Before we hear from the FireX Making Building Safety webinar, I'm joined by IFSEC Global Editor James Moore, who is moderating the session. James, welcome to the podcast. In a moment, I'll ask you to introduce the speakers, but first, it's obviously a pretty critical time at the moment with the recently launched Building Safety Bill and the renamed Fire Safety Act. How have you been following these on IFSEC Global? Hi, Ian, and yeah, thank you for having me on and sharing what was a really insightful session from some of the leading professionals in the sector at FireX Connect. In answer to your question, it really is a critical time for fire safety, particularly in relation to building construction. The impact of Grenfell Tower fire obviously continues to be felt. There's a significant amount of legislation, as you've just mentioned, now coming through as a result of the investigations and reports, some of which are still ongoing, of course, like the Grenfell inquiry itself, into the events and sort of processes that led to the fire in June 2017. Trying to keep up with this all can be a massive challenge, I think, not least for professionals involved in the sector. But we're working hard on ISTEC Global, as I know you are on SHP as well, to keep the audience abreast of the latest developments. We've got roundups of the Fire Safety Act and the Building Safety Bill on the site, explaining the key points and potential outcomes from them, and also providing a, a platform for those sort of in the industry to react to these legislative changes, provide some sort of expert insight and commentary in, into what this all might mean for the fire sector in real terms. I think the discussion here that you're about to listen to, I think also provided a platform for some of the sort of leading association figures to provide their opinions and their thoughts on the new legislation, as well as sort of plenty of other issues, such as fire risk assessments, competency, training, modern methods of construction, and, and plenty more. I think building safety has probably never been more in the limelight. So the insight they provide is, is fascinating, I think, to the health and safety world in general. I think these changes to building safety standards will have probably far-reaching consequences across the industry. I mean, it won't just affect those specialising in fire, I don't think. And who did you have on the panel with you? Everyone on the webinar has a long background in the sector. They really know their stuff, but I'll summarise just their current roles. So on the panel, we had Dennis Davis, the Executive Officer at the Fire Sector Federation, where his role involves leading competency work, fire research and statistics and international affairs. Jonathan O'Neill, OBE, also joined us, who is Managing Director of the Fire Protection Association with a background in the insurance sector. There was Niall Rowan, who was previously the CEO of the Association of Specialist Fire Protection and is now the Technical and Regulatory Affairs Officer with a specialism in passive fire protection. And finally, we had Will Lloyd, who is the Fire Industry Associations, or the FIA for short, Technical Manager, who is also on several standards committees in the fire industry. I kind of began, as you'll hear, by asking for a view from the panel on the number one challenge in improving fire safety in buildings at the moment. Will, if I come to you first. I think the number one challenge is making sure that we're actually doing things correctly. Half of it is competence, but the other half is the quality check. I don't think the quality of buildings is there or has been there. And if we build buildings safely, 
and build them the right way and the way that they're supposed to be designed, then I think the buildings will be safe. I think there's been a lot of value engineering, which is a term I hate. And I think that's one of the main factors into where we are, where we are. By value engineering, what do you mean exactly? Value engineering will take a project. What can we cut costs on? Life safety is life safety. I don't like people cutting costs on life safety. I'm sure everyone else would agree. But even on the structural, the cladding, changing products for ones that haven't been tested or may not have the same rating as before, not sealing penetrations correctly. I'm sure Niall sees so many horror stories of bad sealing and bad fire stopping, which can allow fire to spread. So it all boils down to quality of construction. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Niall, do you want to come into that at that point? Is that something is that yeah, your pick biggest up, challenge? Yeah, pick up on, on, on some of those points. One of the first things we feel is, certainly from a passive perspective, is a, a lack of knowledge of products and systems and how they interact in buildings. And there's a widespread lack of understanding of fire tests and certification. And that leads to poor design because designers are not experts in passive fire protection. And then you couple that with the culture in the construction industry and the lack of any requirements for appropriately competent people. If I would say if you've got a bread knife, a mastic gun and a white van, you are a fire stopper. But you wouldn't let unqualified plumbers or electricians work on your building. So why do we do the same with many other aspects? Dennis, is there anything to have from your perspective on sort of number one challenge? I tend to look at this in a, a slightly different way, I think. Not going backwards over old ground, but in reality, one of the biggest issues was a lack of awareness. A lack of awareness, which is knowledge-based quite often, in all sorts of groups. And I'm, I include the construction sector and government in that. And I think that really got us where we were, plus a lack of investment. Investment in actually ensuring building standards, controls, mechanisms were robust enough and up-to-date enough to manage the situation that was developing. And certainly people like the Fire Sector Federation and others were shouting about this before the terrible events of four years ago. So I think that's the first thing. We need to increase awareness, understanding, get people knowledgeable about what fire and fire safety is all about. I think the second message I would have is a slightly different one, and that's about mind the gap. There are tremendous gaps between actions and knowledge and investments in fire and what i mean by that is if you look at what we're doing at the moment the pace which is what this uh, discussion about this afternoon is all around if you look at it it's focused on high-rise buildings the danger is that you miss a lot of what else is going on at the moment like industrialized building and all the processes that are going on there so I think, first of all, we've got to be very careful that we don't take our eye off all of fire safety whilst we're looking at one particular major issue, a catastrophe, which we've all had. I think the second part of that is we need to be a lot better joined up. As a very simple example in government, I point to the fact that one department looks after how we build buildings and another department looks after how we live and work in buildings. And those gaps are profound and need to be closed and need to be worked on constantly. And I hope the HSE in its new role will have something to say about that. But that brings us to another issue, which is really about the risk posed. And what we're dealing with here is a situation where every day, and we see this in schools and all the rest of it, 
we're taking decisions about fire safety which are based not on a singular event but on the everyday occurrence in other words the likelihood of a fire the likelihood of event so i suppose my two messages are we need to be more aware and we really do need to mind these gaps really good point about minding the gap it was something that russ timpson brought up yesterday in, a, in our panel discussion on on the evacuation of, of tall buildings and, and and this this level of people want this level of fire safety but it's actually here and there also needs to be that thought about as well in, in terms of minding the gap so very good points. And, and Jonathan, just to remind you of the question, what do you perceive to be the number one challenge in relation to improving fire safety buildings at the moment? First thing I should say is that I don't disagree with anything that the other three panellists have said. There are some really big issues there. However, I do think that the number one issue is that we need a better understanding of the performance of modern buildings in fire scenarios. And I think that's the root of what's caused us the problems at the moment. We're seeing now the greater use of combustible materials in the building process. We're seeing inadequate fire stopping in voids and we're seeing a lack of experience and competence on site. And it really is, we've almost got the perfect storm here. My real worry is that as we're seeing a greater pressure on environmental concerns, and this is going to come more to the fore, I think, at the end of this year, where we're seeing government that are under pressure to ensure that we keep emissions low, that they're not thinking about the whole life of the building they're thinking about short-term gains and we're going to see even greater use of combustible materials and still no understanding about how these materials perform in fire and we've seen it time and time again now where we're seeing essentially combustible materials in buildings when we're having a fire we're seeing a total loss and to me since the post-war building studies we haven't really had an opportunity to have a good look to see how these structures perform in fire we've got a fire service college behind me here with an empty fire ground, which, which really we should be seeing all method, all construction when it's brought onto the market. Let's see how it performs in fire. Let's make sure that we've got the systems in place because we're quite often importing these new modern building styles, yet we're not importing the protection methods that go along with them, whether that be fire stopping, whether that be fire suppression. And we've got a fire and rescue service that really are not are having to deal with real fire situations. And quite often it's the first time that they will ever come across this type of structure on fire. And it's almost impossible for them. We've got some questions coming already. There might be some that I, I asked a little bit later, but one that kind of jumps off the back of that and might be one for Niall here is, can the panel explain why third-party approved products aren't mandatory? We've been asking that for 25 years and we've not got it. The government has said that under the Building Safety Bill, they will be looking at the regime for construction products, all products, but especially those with fire and security. And they will be looking at a certain list of products or safety critical products, and they will be introducing requirements for them, which look quite a bit like third party certification. Interesting. And, and on that note, something we wanted to sort of cover today, and, and Will, I'll come to you on this one. And no doubt those in fire safety and building owners will, will be aware of the new legislation coming through or that's in process at the moment, such as the Fire Safety Act and the Building Safety Bill. I'm aware that obviously details are still to be finalised, particularly with the Building Safety Bill, so it might be difficult to comment on some of the intricacies, but are you able to offer any kind of thoughts on, on what's coming in and, and who it may affect and, and how they can keep up with the latest? How to keep up with the latest is probably very easy. Subscribe to a decent fire news channel. Examples are FireX, uh, IFSEC Global, or the FIA's newsletter. Thank you, Will. <laughs> There's a lot of legislation going to appear I think the Building Safety Bill 
is going to be quite big. It's going to have a lot of far-reaching measures. And I think one of the things that is probably a good idea is incorporating residents into the whole scope of it. And to some extent, making us explain how we've made a building safe to them. Because we can build buildings safe. And I think John had a brilliant point about modern methods of construction not being fire tested. We are using innovative products and these new solutions which will build faster, cheaper, maybe. As John said, they haven't been fire tested. We don't know how, how they perform in fire. And there will be combustible material because we are trying to meet insulation standards. But the new legislation that's coming thick and fast, I mean, the, the Fire Safety Act is out. The external walls are now part of the regulatory reform fire safety order. Uh, there's going there's an open government consultation on PEEPs for residential buildings. There's a lot more coming in the pipeline, and it's all new and changing very fast, I'm afraid. It certainly is, and it's something that, you know, editors at Global have been trying to keep up with all the changes with the Fire Safety Act and, and whether it was going through between the Parliament and the Commons and stuff was, was, was tricky to keep up with, but certainly agree with there's, there's lots to sort of subscribe to and, and keep up to date with the latest. De- Dennis, is there anything that you'd like to add? Is, have you, how has the Fire Sector Federation been kind of working with, with government and, and affiliation members to, uh, to, to kind of help the industry in these changes? No, I mean, we've been quite heavily involved with the sort of process that's going on behind the scenes early days, both with the Fire Safety Act and, and with the Building Safety Bill. I mean, the emphasis of the clarity, if you like, of the Fire Safety Act on external walls and fire doors in common areas and so on, I think everyone's well well versed on. And as Will's just said, we're now moving into the sort of recommendations from the first phase of the Granville Inquiry, looking at peeps and... Uh, the FIA led a group with NFCC very recently on information boxes for premises. And I think industry is pretty well aware of those, certainly through our newsletters, our own newsletters, our website. That's what we try to do for all our members. But internally, working with government, you realise that what I call the three Ps are very important in all this process. It is about people, competencies and so on. It is about really products, third-party assurance, testing regimes. Incidentally, the Federation has been looking at the whole product cycle so that it can determine policy. And about two years ago, um, through the good offices of the FBA, we managed to get legal judgments on third party assurance so that we could see how we can move and try and get government to move faster towards these issues. But then you get confounded by issues like Brexit and the, the fact that we take over our own marking regimes and laboratories not got enough capacity and the government's a bit undecided about how we we should go forward in marking and testing products. So these things become quite complex. And as you look at the Building Safety Bill, I'm looking forward maybe five years, six years before we see the sort of implementation that people are really talking about. These are complex requirements that will take a great deal of time. The difficulty is managing the interlude, the period between <coughs> now and then to get there, And as John has touched and as I mentioned at the beginning, industrialised buildings are coming down the path at such a pace. And if you're not careful and not involved in those dialogues, you're going to create a legacy that really will set us back again if we're not careful. Fire safety needs an holistic view. And that's not just a phrase pulled out of anywhere. I mean, we work on a set of principles about how buildings should be made safer. And it does include, as I say, people, products, 
and as you touched on yourself, James, proportionality. People can't have everything they want, even though they might wish it, because the cost is disproportionate to what you're trying to achieve. So somewhere we've got to try and work together to do this. And the only way I can see that happening is by staying fully engaged with government where we can and not having just selective discussions that suit a particular set of circumstances. I should just mention as well to finish that really on that point, there is a danger of overwhelming the industry. You know, you can produce that much detail, seek that many consultations, that quite a few organisations would just have serious difficulty in meeting the challenge of response to all the work that's going on. Good points. And there's so much information coming out at the moment. It is something that can be difficult to keep on top of. And I totally agree with that. Niall, obviously, much of the legislation has, has related to, to passive protection measures or, or, or hopefully will. Has the ASFP been working and liaising with government on areas to improve fire safety at kind of an engineering and risk assessment level? Not so much on risk assessment level, but certainly liaising with government. And just to add my support to Dennis's point about the number of consultations, which is why I'm now chief consultation officer, what it could be, you could re-describe it. There's so much stuff that's coming out at the moment uh, to deal with it all is quite difficult. Regarding the legislation and passive, well, this is mostly enshrined in the in the statutory guidance document, approved document B, and its national equivalents in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And also codes of practice such as BS double nine double nine double nine nine one etc. So we are involved. Uh, I sit on a, a working party of BRAC, that's a Building Regulations Advisory Committee, on approved document B, and we review passive fire protection requirements quite regularly. There's also a steering group that I'm on on one of the research projects coming out, set up by the. MHCLG post Grenfell in the review of approved document B. And this steering panel is looking at fire resistance periods and buildings and whether they're adequate. And the preliminary work is showing that there's nothing wrong with the fire resistance periods. It's actually making sure you get those fire resistance periods. So, yeah, we're involved in terms of a number of committees and initiatives with government. John, I've got a couple of questions here for you. One of which is from the audience, and, and I'll follow up with another one. Does a risk-based approach ask for trouble? That, that's one question from the audience. In theory, I think as fire professionals, where we understand fire risk, risk-based approach is no problem at all. The difficulty is the majority of people and building owners are not risk professionals. That's not what they do day in, day out. And when we've had discussions with, with end users, which we do regularly at the FBA, about what they really want from regulation, they want clear, concise guidance. You know, it's amazing how many people that I talk to that say, wish we could go back to the old fire certificates. At least we knew what was right and what was wrong. The difficulty that we've got with the risk-based approach, the guidance that came out, which was, there was certainly plenty of it that came with the regulatory reform order. It was very, very difficult to get through. Very few people could understand it. And we've had the same criticism, haven't we, from Dame Judith about actually people who have to get through approved document B. It's a technical document. It's not reviewed very frequently. And that's something which we really need to change. How are we in a situation where we can go decades between building regulation review in a fast and moving built environment? Beggars belief to me, to be perfectly honest, and four years down the line from the worst fire tragedy that we've had since the Second World War, we're still in a situation where we haven't had a fundamental change in building regulations in this country. 
We've got to get to a system which, in my view, end users have a very, very clear understanding of what is required of them. Because if they do that, I think we'll have better regulation down the road. The difficulty that we've got where so many things that can be interpreted this way or that way, we get ambiguity and we get confusion. And that's what causes problems, in my view. Absolutely. And obviously, you've kind of covered it here, but how do you think this can be sped up? Obviously, Dennis pointed out there is a lot to kind of think about here and you've got to take a whole holistic-based approach. What what are your thoughts on that? There's a lot to think about here, James, because it's been many, many years since we've had a damn good look at it. And if we were in a situation, which happens in other countries, you know, in Australia, where they're regularly reviewing building regulations, they understand and they have a heck of a fight over it in Australia when they went for a two-year period down from a one-year period, because there's a recognition by the fire safety professionals that we are in a fast-moving, changing built environment. Different construction techniques are coming in. Buildings are being used in different ways. And we've got to have regulations that adapt. So to me, I think an annual building regulations review would not be out of kilter. Whether we would get that or not, I do not know. But we certainly got the department is of a size now that it is, you know, it is geared up post-Grenfell. What my fear is that when the building safety bill has gone through, when the Fire Safety Act is finally nailed, we'll see that department shrink again. And we really don't need it to. It needs to remain that size, particularly the pressures we've got over the hill, as I said earlier on, from COP26. We do need to have a building regulations regime that is fit for purpose. And currently, it's just not there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You mentioned that it's it's obviously grown in size to deal with this. I've come in from this after the events and, and have always sort of viewed it as, as quite fast paced because it's so much has changed in the last year or so, but obviously that wasn't the case beforehand and, and hopefully it doesn't go back to that. Will, question coming from the audience here, what is the best means of establishing fire risk assessor competence, third party accreditation or qualification and by whom? I would immediately say third party certification or being on one of the registers. And if I was looking for one, the Fire Sector Federation now has a register of registers, I believe, Dennis. So if you are looking for a fire risk assessor, I would look for that national register, which is on the uh, Fire Sector Federation website. If my memory serves me right, please tell me I'm right. There's yeah. some nodding going on there. Can I, can I just help Will with that then a little yeah. bit, James? I mean, the Fire Sector Federation, the way we came into this, you were talking earlier about engagement with government and working closely. Well, After the tragedy, industry, first of all, working with government, set up a competency steering group. And that competency steering group looked across the piece. So it looked at architects, fire engineers, fire risk assessors, building control enforcement officers, FRS, and set up different working groups looking at different things. And one of the groups it set up was fire risk assessors and the Fire Sector Federation chaired that group. So became quite involved in the process. And at the back of that work, came the Setting the Bar report, which you may or may not recall, it was published a year ago, and that effectively set out a series of recommendations from industry to take on board effectively Dame Judith's view of how we should change and improve the system, particularly related to competency, and I think that's the key. So off that, the fire risk assessment, which is uh, assessors, which is what Will's talking about, uh, we created the work group. We tried to pull all the people who are involved in that together. There's no limits on how broad the group is. And they produced an approved code of practice, which lays out quite a detailed summary of the skills, knowledge, behaviour, etc., experience that you would expect. 
And they also, we've created this national listing, which brings people who effectively are either third party approved through the process of UCAS, the United Kingdom Accreditation Service, UCAS, which is often through a BAFE scheme or a Warrington Exova scheme, or came through professional engineering through the Institution of Fire Engineers and have therefore got engineering council recognition. And at the moment, that register is about 750. And if one was to approach and look at that register and pick somebody off it, the chances are, because there's a professional body and third party assurance, you would get a competent person. And the most important thing to say about a competent person is they would not undertake a fire risk assessment if they felt it was beyond their competence. Yeah. One of the first rules of competence is you don't do something that you don't think you're competent for. So my advice would be track yourself off to the fire sector Federation website, look up the pages on fire risk assessors, and you'll find a bit of guidance that will really help you, I think. Thank you, Dennis. And it's um, one of the things that I've noticed coming out of the inquiry is, is, is you know, people were, were doing assessments that maybe had, didn't have the experience to be doing them in the first place, which is uh, it's obviously something that is of concern. One for, I guess, Will and Niall here. Will, I'll come to you first. Do you think there's a serious skills gap in the industry in terms of in- installers um, uh, and, and maybe even pushing towards fire risk assessments and, and that kind of thing? Yes. It's <laughs> the short answer. We see it not only in fire detection alarm systems, risk assessors, especially um, fire detection alarm systems. Standards change. A lot of people were trained back in the day and haven't kept up to date. Uh, competence is a living, breathing thing. You're always learning. You're always taking on information. And we do a lot of training for fire detection alarm systems through our uh, qualifications, uh, which are off-call registered. And it's the first time they've ever done a training course in, in years. And they, they are still harking back to the way they were doing it over 15 years ago. And some people are even being taught by people who did it 15 years ago. And they're just not up to date with current regulations, current standards and current way of thinking. Even just on a manufacturing point of view, manufacturers do training. We have a a lot of manufacturers as members and they're introducing new products and you have to keep up to date with the products as well just to maintain competence. And I'm sure Niall has the same view when we talk about the passive side. No, you're obviously welcome to add to that, but also there's a question that came in from the audience to, to, to put on as well is if fire stopping in voyage is a good point. How does a plumber, for example, understand fire stopping? Do you think that industry does or, you know, electricians as well? Um, or I think there's, there's two ways to, to separate this into two different groups. One is the fire safety professionals and the construction professionals. And in a parallel activity with the FIA, we've developed what we call the ASFP foundation course, which leads to an off-call registered qualification. And the awarding body is the IFE, that's the Institution of Fire Engineers. And it's the only passive course that's recognised by by off-call. And in a similar way to the Fire Industry Association has done it with alarm and so on. So you've got that situation, but that's a relatively recent situation for us and there's not that many people been through it. And that was my earlier point about designers not understanding passive fire protection. So that's the first point. The second point is the awareness point that Dennis mentioned earlier. 
And often the TV engineers, we cite them as the worst case, TV engineers, but often plumbers and electricians will make holes and walls and will not fire stop it or will not fire stop it adequately. But there's a distinction between them and people who are doing it for a living where they're just coming into a building and just doing fire stopping. Yeah, it's interesting. I previously worked in the plumbing and heating sector and from the stuff I read, I didn't read a lot about some of those things you need to think about when drilling new holes into the wall, for example. Um, and is that is, is there a kind of misunderstanding? Is there just a lack of awareness there of how it can affect? Well, there's a, a, bit, a, bit, of each, a bit of each, really. Uh, a lot of them are just, are just not aware that, that they need to maintain compartmentation. By doing this, they are breaching compartmentation. And there's not been that emphasis on training and certifying them appropriately before. Now, you know, I've been in touch with a couple of the electrical trades associations and they're very interested in, in moving moving forward with that. Um, the, the question is how much, you know, an electrician's main job is to wire up a house or a building. How much time should you devote to fire protection and fire safety, a small proportion or a large proportion? That's the discussion that's being happened at the moment. One of the competency groups I mentioned, which Niall is, is part of as well, is the installers group. And, and whilst they've looked, as Niall has said, at certainly the installers' technical needs, which is, which is different to the general awareness, they have looked at the general awareness. And recently, that group looked at a general awareness training programme for everyone. In other words, for all who go onto construction sites. Relatively lightweight, very basic, you could argue, but very much about trying to engender that awareness on what these firewalls, what these compartments are all about, so that you don't destroy compartmentation with penetrations that aren't properly stopped. And the interesting thing is that's likely to be picked up by the Construction Industry Training Board. And if it is, that could become a, a way of just increasing general awareness the way you do with health and safety on building sites. So... There are moves afoot. Interesting. You mentioned the, the health and safety side of, of things here. And, and Jonathan, if I come to you on how do you believe the implementation of a, of a building safety regulator will affect the industry? Obviously, it's being housed within the, the health and safety executive, um, slightly different to how things have been done before, from what I understand. Is that a good thing? Is that going to create challenges? What, what do you think? We have to see how it pans out, to be perfectly honest. I think I'd have gone for something which was more tried and trusted if I was designing it, I suppose. With Dame Judith's background, perhaps the health and safety executive was where it was bound to end up. I'm sure that, that the new building safety regulator is a very, very competent guy, but I don't think he's got a big background in fire safety. And I think that's what's needed. We're going to need people that understand, fully understand fire safety. And to me, there were other places where there would have been a more natural fit. I'm also really concerned, again, what's the building safety regulator looking at? quite a narrow definition of what they think is high-risk buildings. We've touched on this before. This obsession with height is, seems crazy to many of us, I think, in the industry. I think that most of us would probably agree that we happen to have a disaster in Grenfell Tower. It happened to be a tall building, but actually we've got away with it in many, many smaller buildings for very many years. Actually, only a couple of years ago, there was a fire in Cheshire in a Beachmere care home in Crewe, and actually it happened on a Sunday afternoon. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon. Most of the residents happened to be outside. But a timber frame building for a care home with no fire suppression, fire stopping looked to be inadequate. Fire and rescue service didn't have a chance of saving the building. If that had happened, and this is the chief fire officer's own words, and he attended that incident, if that had happened at two or three o'clock in the morning, we'd have had a completely different result. 
So to me, the building fire safety regulator doesn't need to be looking at just high rise, high risk buildings. The risk is, is not height dependent and we need to start to, to broaden it. We do not need a two track building safety regime in this country. And that's my real big fear that that's the way we're going. Yes, certainly something that I've heard as well. Um, that the concern is that obviously that there'll be the top layer of, of really sort of a lot of assessment, a lot of focus on the buildings over 18 metres, and then those under will start missing the gaps again. And obviously, much of the legislation has kind of looked at buildings over 18 metres or, or six storeys within the scope. Uh, and anything below that has often been described as, as not high risk or, or just isn't kind of considered. John, is, is there a historical slash technical reason behind this for those who aren't in the industry? Is, is, is 18 metres, is there a specific reason behind that? I'm often told it, it's ladder reach, but I mean, you know, this, this, it, it, it's crazy, really. We've, we've seen the ridiculous situation that we're in with, 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 with leaseholders now in low-rise combustible buildings that certainly will probably comply with modern building regulations, but are now considered to be a dangerous fire risk because of what we found out at the Grenfell. And we've got, we've got a regulation system which has completely let them down, yet actually the government haven't stepped in to look after them. To me, it's ludicrous. We've, there's got to be an admission by government that actually we should, if we've looked at building regulations on a more regular basis than we had in the past, we've done a proper assessment of how, how structures perform in fire and how the techniques that we were bringing into the built environment affected the fire performance of buildings. We'd have had a completely different set of regulations. We'd have had a regulatory system that was fit for purpose. And these people really might be now to need to be compensated. We need to draw a line under it. We need to move on. But this is not height dependent. Interesting. And I think that's probably the views of, of a lot of leaseholders out there at the moment. I've, I've seen it across the sort of, you know, the mainstream media, not just the fire safety media. And it's, it is, it is a concern. Dennis, if I come to you on this one, it's another question from the audience. So many coming in. So thank you for everyone asking these questions. Do we feel that new regulation will provide sufficient ability to enforce cooperation of all responsible persons, such as leaseholders in social housing? That's a difficult question because, first of all, you've got two regimes. You're going to have accountable persons and you're going to have responsible persons. So there you go. A conflict to start with. And there are this, this law of cooperation is very, very difficult in a practical working sense, and, and risk assessors will tell you that, particularly in residential buildings and particularly in leaseholder residential buildings, you already have a divergence between ownership and responsibility, where the leaseholder, of course, everything behind the door is theirs and their responsibility, but they're in a building where there's a common responsibility for the common areas. So it's quite a minefield it's one of these situations where you can pass regulations to actually do things, but they can become nonsensical. And I'll use a simple illustration of a fire door. You know, one of the problems of assessing a fire door is that you can assess it from the common side, i.e. the landing and so on. But to actually assess the door properly, you've got to go on the other side. You've got to go into the, the property and see what the other side, because they may have removed architrave in all sorts of things. The reality is you could pass a regulation that says the owner, the occupier, must give access. And then if they don't, you can enforce that power. But what's the point of breaking down a door to see if it's suitable as a fire door? You know, I mean, it's a nonsensical situation. I'm not trying to be funny, but what I'm trying to say is that these things are not as simple as people quite often perceive them. And I think the whole question, and Jonathan's explained it well, the whole question about we assess risk and who assesses risk and what we believe is risk is quite complex. And unless you really 
are intent on trying to find the proper solution. People go for these quick fixes in a way. Let's draw a line at, you know, height 10 stories and above. Let's draw. And yet the reality is, I mean, the Beachmere example is a classic. You can have a very low height, uh, height building, two-story, and you could have lost an awful lot of people had that fire occurred at the wrong time of day and night. So you need to look at this process in the round. And one of the worries I've got, I mean, Peter Baker's been appointed Chief Inspector of Buildings with HSC. It could go either way. You could get in a situation where HSC actually pulls the whole thing together, the departmental view that I was talking about, so that from birth of a building until it's demolished and in its occupancy, there is a regime and someone giving it oversight. Or if the emphasis tracked off as HSE major hazards does towards preventing catastrophes, then what happens to the everyday likelihood of probability of fire, which is what fire risk in the building regulations generally are all about. So what I'm trying to say is both at a very practical, nitty gritty level and at a very strategic level, there are some big questions that have got to be answered in an industry that's probably one of the most innovative there are, the construction industry, where products and ways of doing things changes almost on a daily basis. So it's not, it's not simple. And I think I have empathy with the departments that are looking at these things, and they are properly staffed at long last. But will they sustain that once this legislation emerges and so on and the responsibilities shift? That's the big question for all of us in the industry, in the fire sector, I think. No, I don't know if you wanted to add to that. Clearly, it was many people who was talking about risk. It has to be fair to Dame Judith, and and they've always said that although the, J, the definition of in-scope is 18 metres, they want to spread that and increase that scope. But it was kind of, let's do one bit at a time. And there's thousands of buildings that need remediation, etc. The worry, which Johnson's alluded to, is that when we've got the new legislation in place and we've done the tall buildings, it will just be forgotten again. Will, there's a question here as well. Uh, are, are there plans to develop clearer training routes for new fire risk assessors to encourage competence, thus encouraging more tier one assessors, for example? BAFE have now taken over, are about to take over control of the FIA's awarding organisation and they already have a qualification for risk assessors, but that is for uh, experienced risk assessors. And I think they're going to start looking, and it's something the FIA want to push for, is to start training new people. I look around at the panel, no offence, guys, but I'm starting to look like you. We're all silver-haired. We need younger people to come into the industry, and we need to find a route for them, especially risk assessors. I always say that uh, a fire risk assessment is something that's very easy to do. It's very hard to do well. So the training, we are looking at it and the FIA along with BAFE. So, yeah, it is something that we are considering. Are there specific parts that are often kind of misunderstood or you, you mentioned it's very hard to do well? Is, 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 is there something common that just isn't quite there? I think Dennis said it before. It's knowing your limits. The key part of competence is knowing what you don't know. And it's very easy to not see certain risks within a building and make assumptions. Uh, and if you del delve a little bit deeper, you'll find that there are issues which will affect uh, the risk assessment. And it's being familiar with how those buildings actually operate. 
and how people use and live in buildings or just use buildings when we're talking about an industrial. Just add in on that. When the regulatory reform fire safety order came in, there were no requirements on fire risk assessors, quote, because the government didn't want to create, quote, a consultant's charter. So we ended up with a whole load of fire risk assessors who were not competent to do the job. And that's partly why we've ended up where we are now. And that's why we've now got the competency steering group and the working group for fire risk assessors, which is chaired by, by Dennis. And we've got a register and this this is all coming into being. Let nobody say they weren't warned. That if you don't have requirements for a professional and anybody can do it, fire risk assessments done with cameras shoved through letterboxes, free fire risk assessments. If you buy a rodent trap, mind boggles of what used to go on and possibly still is going on when the fixation is on price and not on quality. Yeah. Do you think technology can play a part in this? I've, I've, I've seen sort of um, a couple of bits pieces about potential body cams being used as fire risk assessors are looking around. So there's some kind of evidence that they've been looking at certain things. Do you think technology has a part to play in this? Well, yeah, you can use camera techniques, but whether it's a body cam or whatever else. I mean, one would hope the big thing that will come in the future was the digital mapping of buildings. And you'll know what's in the building because the trouble is now a fire risk assessor goes into a building and he or she doesn't know what it's in. They've got no idea where the compartment lines are. They've got no idea what sprinkler systems are installed or when they were last maintained. And there's often a total lack of information. When you buy a secondhand car, you hopefully you get you know, a, a, an owner's manual and service receipts and stamps in the book and garage bills and a few oily footmarks, which is a really good sign. And often when you buy a building, you get nothing. And that's a real, really big problem. It's supposed to be enshrined when you install a fire protection system in something called Regulation 38. When we ask questions at seminars, anybody heard of Regulation 38? It's got better. It used to be about 4%. It's now about 34%. But there's still widespread ignorance. And that will be, sorry, I'm going on a bit, but that will be if part of the golden thread of fire information that starts at the beginning and will be passed on to the building safety manager and the responsible person. So that when the fire risk assessor comes to do the fire risk assessment, they know what is in the building, what needs to be checked. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, question here for you. How do you think the insurance sector may influence legislation going forwards, you know, off, off the back of the, 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 the legislation coming in and regulation, particularly maybe in the private housing or leisure sector? Well, one thing I think probably ought to state from the very, very start is the insurer is not the regulator. I often have the discussions, particularly when we talk about sprinkler protection and the building regulations department at MHCRG say, well, if the insurers want to have sprinklers, they've got to insist on it and that, and that will happen. No, it doesn't. We all know what happens is that when regulation or guidance is set out, it's seen as a minimum. Very, very few go above that minimum. Where will the insurance industry go? Well, I think it will take a view on risk. And I think it will say, well, actually, again, as far as we know, this is what we can quantify. And this is how we, we will treat it, either by price or by condition. It's all well and good for the government to moan about the insurance industry, you know, not actually being as responsive as they want it to be. But we've seen this for floodplains, for example, build on floodplains. And actually, the insurance industry has not got a great deal of appetite for actually taking it on. Build combustible structures and the insurance industry won't have a great deal of appetite to take it on. And so the only way it's going to be able to look at it and to take it on, to put it onto its books, is by pricing it accordingly. 
And that's a difficult thing because quite often we're talking about people who really can't afford high insurance premiums. And so we sort of get into a vicious circle at that point. Traditionally, the way the insurance industry has looked at risk is actually it's gone back to that question we had earlier on about third party certification. And if I go back to the introduction we got, I gave at the beginning, the Loss Prevention Council was third party certification body, which the insurers disposed of 25 years ago because they didn't feel as though that was something they really ought to be into anymore. They thought that the industry should take that up. I think there was an expectation from the insurance industry that government might see the sense in third party certification as they have in gas regulation, for example. And we have started to see competence being looked after by third party certification. It's a tremendous tool. And I just really don't understand why it's been, it hasn't been embraced more by government. But I think you'll see the insurance industry, as they have in the security industry, looking at third party certification and saying, well, actually, if we're going to factor in fire protection systems, we need to ensure that they're fit for purpose, adequately tested and have been looked at by a third party organisation. What are your thoughts on, on modern methods of construction? You know, there's been concern over timber frame buildings, whether they're fit for purpose with regards to fire safety. How do you view this trend? I think if we get it right, it's good. If we get it wrong, it's bloody awful. Frankly, the issue isn't the use of timber. Timber's been our main building material since we started building houses from trees. So it isn't that that's wrong. It's the application, how you do it. And the reality, as I touched on, is that we, i.e. the fire sector, where all this knowledge resides, is not necessarily being actively involved, and I make that point, in the industrialised building process. So my big concern is that I would worry that you are constructing a legacy of buildings not from the best foundation, literally, in terms of your fire safety risk knowledge. And I think that's the point that's got to be got across. You raised it earlier in one sense in, in technologies. Technology, of course we want it. And of course technology could be extremely powerful. Can you imagine simple sensors in everyone's property that really do alert them and alert emergency responses and activate systems and so on? We, we can do an awful lot and we could invest in that uh, quite well. And, and we are technically one of the best countries in the world for leading on this stuff. But if you don't bother to consult and apply it in a sensible way, you can build a complete legacy of, of modern methods, using modern methods of construction, concentrating, as John said, maybe on thermal insulation to try and reduce carbon to zero. You can do all these things against another set of priorities and actually create yourself a serious, serious problem. And in terms of the other issue you touched on briefly, insurance. It's about liability. And what I worry at the moment is a lot of people are backing away from liabilities. I, I mean, we've recently seen examples, James, and I don't know whether you recall this, where the local authorities pulled down guidance because they were worried it was getting out of date. And therefore, that might open up all sorts of risks and liabilities. We've got a situation where there are fire risk assessors in the UK who can't do their job because they can't get liability insurance to allow them to do their job because people are just nervous of what that liability might involve. So industrialization, technologies and insurance are really all wrapped up in one circle, aren't they? They're all about embracing what we know and using it to our advantage as a society. And I'm afraid sometimes that just does not happen. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and, and technology is, is something that I know 
is being looked at. I think uh, the FIA have got a special interest group, if, if I'm right, uh, Will, in, in terms of the IoT side yeah. of things. These things need to be thought about. One thing that the Grenfell Inquiry has clearly thrown into light is the need for a change in attitude, I think, towards building safety standards. While legislative changes are incoming, we've discussed a lot of this and, and commentators have described that that is a bit like piecemeal change. What we need is systemic cultural change, I think. And all of what we've talked about today, I think, kind of includes that. I hope you'll agree that that was a really thought-provoking discussion in an area where legislation is constantly evolving and so needs to be constantly monitored. A huge thank you, therefore, to James and the FSEC team for allowing us to use that session on the podcast this month. If you want to read more from FSEC Global, where you can go further in depth into the Building Safety Bill and the Fire Safety Act, I'll drop some of the key links into the episode description. I'd also like to highlight the recent IFSEC and Fire Rates ebook, which looks at a year of challenges and change in fire safety and is free to download. Again, you can find that link in the episode description. If you've not listened to any of the previous 12 episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check those out. Last time we heard from former number 10 Downing Street Director of Communications, Alistair Campbell, about the stigma around mental health in the workplace, as well as a candid interview based on personal experience with burnouts. If you like what you hear, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we're also available on Amazon Alexa. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate us and comment on your chosen platform, as that would really help us get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest in health and safety news, and you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening, and see you on the next episode.